In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad wa ajil farajahum. Dear brothers, respected viewers, assalamu alaikum jami'an wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh. And welcome once again to our series, Life, the Islamic Answer, in which we are trying to extract the principles of living an Islamic life in a very complex and quickly changing world. You will remember that we were discussing the theme of knowledge and reason in Islam. And we said that first and foremost, our religion gives a great importance to reason and knowledge and intellect and the alternative being ignorance and foolishness, or what is referred to as jahl, is not an option, is not an alternative. And this means that we therefore have to embark on a journey of knowledge and reason, and this has two conditions. For knowledge and reason to be Islamic, first, it must lead to action, and secondly, the intent behind learning and the manner in which the knowledge is used has to be sincere. If those two conditions are met, then our religion considers the knowledge, regardless of its type, of its source, that knowledge is considered Islamic knowledge, and therefore our religion has a lot to say about this type of knowledge and its importance, in fact, its necessity in our lives. This meant that if we're going to start on this journey, we have to become learners. And the learner does not live in a vacuum. They are part of a greater system. This is a system that is made up of the person seeking the knowledge. And we said that this is a lifelong journey that never ends. Regardless of how much knowledge one acquires, there is no end to how much knowledge there is to acquire. And so we must become learners. And the moment you start to acquire knowledge, regardless of how little or how much of that knowledge you have, you now carry a knowledge, and therefore you are a scholar. To the extent that you carry knowledge, some of us carry a little bit of knowledge, and some of us may carry a lot of knowledge. Regardless of how much knowledge, the moment you carry any knowledge, you are now falling in the category of being a scholar which means that now you have a responsibility towards this knowledge. You have to act in a certain way the moment you carry knowledge. And so we spent a bit of time understanding what it means to be a learner in our religion. And then we turned our attention to the other aspect of the equation, which is what it means to be a scholar or a teacher, the person who carries the knowledge. And we said it's important here to focus on ourselves. As much as we want to look outside of ourselves for someone to meet and to match this description that we have in our religion about who is a scholar, we have to start with ourselves to see to what extent do we match, to what extent do we meet these characteristics in ourselves. The point of these characteristics is that everybody becomes all of the traits, except that the more knowledge you have, the more it is expected that you 
display those traits and those traits become you and you become those traits. And so we went through a large number of these traits. Some of them are social, some of them are spiritual, some of them are cognitive and intellectual. And we ended the last time we met with some of the social responsibilities and duties of the scholars. So what's left in this discussion is to talk a little bit about the rights and the merits of the scholars. And inshallah, we won't spend too much time on this because one way or another, we've touched on a lot of these. We'll just go quickly over some of the hadith and we'll try to limit comments about them. I think they're going to be very clear. And inshallah, this will allow us to wrap up this topic of the learner and the teacher. And the third part, which we have hinted to, but we haven't dedicated any talks to. So inshallah, we will end it with that, the community. Because these two individuals live and become part of a community. And so what does it mean to be a community of knowledge? And our claim from the beginning of the series is that our religion is a knowledge revolution. First, before being anything else, it's a revolution of knowledge, built around knowledge. So you acquire your status and your value first by acquiring knowledge and acting on the knowledge that you have which means that we can talk about a community of knowledge. So what does a community of knowledge mean? What are some of its characteristics? We'll have a couple of brief lectures on that, and then we'll try to end the whole discussion and the whole theme of knowledge and reason in Islam with a bit of a discussion on the types of knowledge that our religion encourages. Okay, so to come back to now what we're trying to address quickly, as we said, the rights of the scholar. <clears throat> and as we said, there's a number of these that we've already seen in a, a lot of the ahadith, but we were not focused on the scholar then. We were focused perhaps on the learner or some of the characteristics of the scholar. Now we want to focus on what is the right that the scholar has. When I have someone who is my teacher, a spiritual teacher, a teacher in the divine sense, what are the rights of this person upon me? And then, as we said, next is going to be the merits of this person. What are the favors? What is the rank that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives to this person? Because we spent a lot of time talking about the duties and the responsibilities. And so might, one might wonder, why would I want to become a scholar if all I get out of this is additional duties and additional responsibilities? Who wants to carry this much more duty and responsibility? Well, the person who's interested in achieving much higher ranks and in achieving much higher rewards from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if you meet those responsibilities and those duties and those characteristics, then you start falling in the category of the true scholar, the person who is worthy of carrying that knowledge. And we will see that the merits of this person are great. So very quickly, some of what we will cover, we'll see how much time we have today to cover what we can. There will be a focus on the narrations and the ahadith about honoring this person. So honoring in general, or there will be very specific instances or examples what it means to honor this person. We will see some of them. So that includes, for instance, the importance of hosting and visiting this person. 
the importance of accompanying and being around, being a companion of this person who is the true scholar or true teacher. The importance of asking questions. And we dedicated a whole, a couple of lectures, a whole series of subtopics related to asking, learning and asking when we were talking about the learner, the importance of learning from, the importance of following, the importance of obedience to this person that becomes the teacher or the scholar in Islam. Two very quick points as introductions and then we start with the ahadith. Both of them we've talked about, but I think it's important that we emphasize. The first is that from the beginning of the series, and then we emphasize this when we started talking about the teacher, we said that the true teacher, the absolute in the absolute sense, not the relative sense, not someone who may or may not be a teacher, not someone who may become a scholar or not to 60% or 80% or 20%. The true meaning of the teacher, when we go back to the hadith of Ahlul Bayt of the Holy Prophet the true teacher, the true scholar, the true alim is an infallible, is a ma'soom, is a prophet or a messenger or an imam. This is the only true meaning of a alim, someone who carries knowledge, because their knowledge is guaranteed to be divine. Everyone else is only a teacher and only a scholar to the extent that they match, they follow, they point back to the masul. So if someone in their teachings and in their knowledge and what they carry in themselves matches what the masul says 20%, then they are alim only 20%. 50%, 50%. 90%, And of course, what we're looking for is the person who carries the most, the highest percentage from what they are saying matches the teachings of the Holy Prophet, the teachings of Ahlul Bayt. This is what we're looking for. Because otherwise, we're not interested. Your opinions and mine don't really mean anything in this world. Everybody's opinions are equal. It starts to carry a different meaning when the opinion is not just an opinion, that it is divine knowledge, a divine teaching. This is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants human beings to know. And this has come to us through the infallibles. And so in a lot of cases when we see the ahadith, and sometimes the ahadith talk about the alim, and we've tried to hint to that from the beginning of the series, some of the ranks of who the alim is, the scholar is, the teacher is, they seem to be very elevated. The person seems to be described as though they are infallible. They never make mistakes. You have to find, follow them blindly. Why? Because the hadith are really talking about the ma'soom. They're talking about the infallible. And what about everyone else who becomes a scholar? Is it possible? Very possible. Of course, it is. Everyone is supposed to be that person as much as they can. And some people achieve very high ranks. But we cannot say about them that this is absolute, without restrictions, without conditions. So long as they are matching this description, then we follow them, we respect them, we obey them, and so on and so forth. Okay, that was a point. And so again, today, I don't want to repeat this every time we encounter some of these ahadith. So we say it in the introduction, and then we move on. The second point is related to the fact that we're only 
mentioning the rights of the teacher and then after that the merits of the teacher and merits of the scholar after we spent a lot of time talking about the duties and the responsibilities and the characteristics and there's a reason for this it's not just because someone wears certain clothes or says about themselves i'm a scholar or i'm a teacher or just carries a large amount of knowledge that they automatically become this person that is described in the ahadith we made sure to clearly define who the teacher and who the scholar is in islam and the person who matches those descriptions, then they have these rights over us. Clear? Okay. So with these two points, we start with the ahadith. What I should start with, but I'm not going to, I'm simply going to refer to previous lectures where we spent a good amount of time on this, are some of the verses of the Qur'an related to this topic. And we said perhaps the best place to find all of them combined in an easy way, in a very rich and dense and easy way, are the verses in Surah Al-Kahf, the cave. Because we find in there the story of Prophet Musa salam, with the person that the Qur'an describes as he encountered one of our servants, Abdan min ibadina, to whom we had given knowledge, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says. This is a distinctive feature of this Abd, the servant, that he was given a special knowledge from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So now we're interested in these verses because this means this is a scholar. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying this is a true scholar. This is a true teacher. To the point where a messenger and a prophet of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who is always in a state of trying to seek knowledge, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells him there is someone who has a special kind of knowledge. You have to go learn it from him. And so he goes looking for him. In the Ruwayat, this is Al-Khadr. And so he goes looking for him, and we have the story in a number of verses in Surah Al-Kahf. And we spent a lot of time going through it to talk about a lot of the points that the Holy Quran is referring to in the relationship of the student with the teacher. Because in this case, Prophet Musa السلام, is a student. He's the learner. And he's interacting with someone as his teacher, and in fact, he doesn't just automatically say, I'm a learner and you're a teacher. He goes to him and he seeks permission. Will you allow me to follow you so that I may learn from some of the knowledge that you have been given? This is how it starts. This is the etiquette and the manners and the respect that he's showing him because he has a type of knowledge that he doesn't have. Okay, so we went through a lot of those points previously in previous lectures. Inshallah, you go back to them and uh, you cover those. So beyond these verses of the Quran, where we talked about some of these manners and this, the importance of humility and honor and the etiquettes and how to be with the, the, the scholar or the teacher. We have the hadith that talk, and we mentioned this hadith previously, that talk about the importance of humility and kindness. And we saw that it goes both ways. So I'm only going to mention one hadith quickly about this because we talked about it a lot. The hadith is from the Holy Prophet alayhi, in which he says, Linu liman tu'allimun waliman min. Linu is, it means become kind, become gentle. Don't be rigid. Don't be inflexible. 
Okay? But the Holy Prophet says it goes both ways. To the person you're teaching and to the person you're learning from. And so we focused when we recited and went through this hadith, we focused on the learner. So we were talking about the importance and the rights of the learner. Why does the teacher have to be lenient and flexible and kind and gentle and merciful with the learner? Now we want to focus on the second half. The Holy Prophet says, and be kind and be flexible and be gentle and be merciful and compassionate towards the person who is teaching you, that you are learning from, acquiring knowledge from. And there's a number of points related to this. The first one is that this is not just about the person as this individual. When the Holy Prophet says this, the Holy Prophet is saying, this is out of respect for the knowledge that this person carries. It's not for the person as the person. You're only doing this, you have to be extra kind, extra flexible, extra compassionate with this person, because you're receiving a knowledge from them. So for what they are carrying, you have to treat them in a different way. And we're going to see that. The hadith are clear. This person has a distinction. And this is going to bring us to the idea of the community of knowledge. Islam gives a special rank and a special place to knowledge. It recognizes it. So it's not because the person is this person. It's because this person has become someone who is carrying a knowledge that you are benefiting from. So the Holy Prophet says, treat them with that flexibility and with that compassion. That's first. Secondly, and this has to do with, let's call it a psychological aspect. You want to continue very selfishly. You want to continue benefiting from this person. If you start to become rigid and difficult and impatient, you track their mistakes and you catch all of them and you remind them of them and so on and so forth perhaps this person is not really going to be very interested in continuing to teach you and to share their knowledge with you so the holy prophet is saying make an extra effort with this person for the sake of the knowledge for your own sake you're continuing to benefit from this person go the extra mile Show a little bit more compassion, more gentleness, so that you continue to benefit from that knowledge. And in there, perhaps, and we spent a lot of time talking about the psychology of the learner and learning and the psychology of the teacher and teaching at the beginning, it's because this is not always easy. So you have to make an extra effort. Otherwise, this is not going to be the case. And the relationship will break. And so the Holy Prophet is saying, but it's important that this relationship doesn't stop so long as you're benefiting from that knowledge. So go the extra mile. Make an extra effort and stay gentle and kind to the person you're learning from. And of course we said the opposite. There's more we can say here, but inshallah this is clear enough. The second right of the scholar or the teacher, so first we said be compassionate, be kind and gentle, that's the first. The second one, and there's a lot of hadith related to this, is to honor them. To show them that the hadith talk about karama. To show them honor. 
Now you have to come up with what that means. And we're going to see a lot of examples, but they're not limited to this. Show the person honor. And inshallah, we'll come back to this when we talk about community. So the Holy Prophet in one hadith, he says, Show honor to the scholars, for they are honored by God. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has honored this person. You may see it, you may not see it, but they have a knowledge. They've been given a certain amount of knowledge. If the knowledge, as we said earlier, matches the description we gave, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has honored this person. Which means, regardless of how this person is or seems, the role they play, the rank they have in society, you know this person has knowledge, you have to show them an extra honor for that knowledge that they carry. Because in the true world, in the true knowledge of God, this is someone who is honored. Okay, that's one. The other hadith related to this, and as we said, there's a lot of hadith we had to pick and choose here. From the Holy Prophet ﷺ, he says, تَوَاضَعُوا لِلْعَالِمِ وَارْفَعُوهُ فَإِنَّ الْمَلَائِكَةَ تَرْفَعُوا الْعَالِمِ وَتَخْفِضُ أَجْنِحَتَهَا وَتَسْتَغْفِرُ لَهُ So the Holy Prophet says, Humble yourselves before the scholar and elevate him. For indeed the angels raise the scholar and they lower their wings to him and seek God's forgiveness for him. Okay, so here the Holy Prophet is introducing the other factor that we don't see. In the first one he said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala honors him. Now he's giving us another example of this honor, this time by talking about how the angels treat this person. Okay, again, something we would not have access to. But the Holy Prophet is saying, you're not alone in recognizing this. And we have many other ahadith that I did not mention. The whole world recognizes if you carry true knowledge, the more of it you carry, the world that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created recognizes that knowledge, honors you, honors your place in the world, in the universe, in the material world for the knowledge you carry. Okay? The next hadith from the Holy Prophet The Holy Prophet says, مَنْ أَكْرَمَ عَالِمًا فَقَدْ أَكْرَمَنِي وَمَنْ أَكْرَمَنِي فَقَدْ أَكْرَمَ اللَّهِ وَمَنْ أَكْرَمَ اللَّهِ فَمَصِيرُهُ إِلَى الْجَنَّةِ the Holy Prophet says, whoever honors a scholar, they have honored me. And whoever honors me, they have honored God. And whoever honors God, their final destination is paradise. Another similar hadith, and then I'll, I'll make a couple of comments. From the Holy Prophet ﷺ, he says, by opposition, مَنْ احْتَقَرَ صَاحِبَ الْعِلْمِ so whoever belittles, whoever condescends the scholar, he has belittled me. And whoever belittles me, he is a disbeliever. These words are very significant from the Holy Prophet Already this gives us a very high rank and a very high status that we understand about the scholar. So how do we understand this? First, we made some comments in the introduction. Keep those in mind. Secondly, this is a well-known principle in human beings who have to live together and deal with 
each other and with all sorts of things. It's like the Holy Prophet is saying, do it for me. The Holy Prophet is telling you whether you understand it or not, whether you agree with it or not, whether you fully realize the full significance of this or not, I want you to honor this scholar. So some of us may say, okay, but really why? And we may have questions and we may have doubts about this. The Holy Prophet simply tells you, if you do that, it's as though you're honoring me. Do you have any doubts about honoring me? No. And if you do, then I'm going to add, the person who honors me, it is as though they are honoring God. You fully recognize the right of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by honoring me. And by opposition, if you do not honor me, you're a disbeliever. You do not believe. You do not understand my role as a messenger and a prophet to you. So whether you agree with, whether you fully understand or not what you're supposed to do with the scholar, the Holy Prophet is giving you a completely different argument. He's simply telling you, just do it for me. If you honor me, if you believe in me, then honor this person who carries knowledge. And if you do not, then you are not honoring me, you're dishonoring me, you're going to fall in the category of the disbelievers. So very significant, but the Holy Prophet is saying, do it for me, do it for God. This is something that perhaps in one way, I always see these as it's not always easy. So the Holy Prophet has to give you a very big reward and a big punishment related to it so that it's much more of an incentive. Okay, that's the first reason. And of course, the second point related to this, and it brings us back to previous ahadith, is that it's because the scholar is not about themselves. What you're honoring in the scholar is not the individual. What you're honoring in the scholar is the knowledge they carry. So here, what's implied, what is not said explicitly in the hadith, but it's clearly there, when the Holy Prophet says, it's as though you're honoring me, and if you honor me, it's as though you're honoring Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the condition is that this knowledge represents the teachings of the Prophet. So it's not all knowledge. Otherwise, I'm, I would not be honoring the Holy Prophet. If this person carries information that I want to call knowledge, that the Holy Prophet disagrees with, then I'm not honoring the Holy Prophet by honoring this person. Logically, there's a contradiction. So it brings us back to the first point we made, which is to the extent that this knowledge matches the teachings of the Holy Prophet, it is to be honored. In that case, yes, I am honoring the knowledge and I honor the person who carries that knowledge because that knowledge is the knowledge of the Holy Prophet. This is certainly worth a lot. It comes directly from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and this person has learned it and they are passing it on to others. Yes, in that case, they deserve to be honored. So that's the condition that's implied. The next hadith from the Holy Prophet ﷺ, he says, أَكْرِمْ ضَيْفَكْ وَإِنْ كَانَ حَقِيرًا وَقُمْ عَنْ مَجْلِسِكَ لِأَبِيكَ وَمُعَلِّمِكَ وَإِنْ كُنْتَ أَمِيرًا And there's a very similar hadith from Imam Ali السلام, that which mentions those two points and a third one. So the first hadith first, 
from the Holy Prophet ﷺ, he says, honor your guest, even if they are of a very low status. That's first. And rise from your seat out of respect, out of honor, again. And rise from your seat for your father and your teacher, even if you are a prince, or even if you become a prince. If your father enters, you rise out of respect and honor. And if your teacher comes to you and you see them, you rise out of respect and honor. But as we said, these are examples. It's one example to show honor to the teacher or to the father by standing up for them. If you see them. You can come up with dozens or hundreds of other examples of how to honor them or respect them. But if this is valid, then it's valid for all those things. It means honor them and respect them in every which way that you could think of. The other hadith from Imam Ali السلام, which complements this one, from Imam Ali السلام, he says, ثَلَاثٌ لَا يُسْتَحْيَا مِنْهُنْ خِدْمَةُ الرَّجُلِ ضَيْفَهُ وَقِيَامُهُ عَنْ مَجْلِسِهِ لِأَبِيهِ وَمُعَلِّمِهِ وَطَلَبُ الْحَقِّ وَإِنْقَلْ so this is a, there's a third one that was not mentioned in the first hadith from Imam Ali السلام, He says, there are three things that one should never be ashamed of doing. You should always do. The first one, serving one's guest. And he says it in, in Arabic. He says, It's like a servitude. Right? But as a host and you have a guest, do it. Go out of your way and show as much servitude to this person as you can. They're your guest, honor them. Okay, so these are Islamic teachings. Sometimes we say this is not purely Islamic, or it might be cultural. No, it's not. These are Islamic teachings. Make the person feel like they are honored when they come to you. Go out of your way to show them servitude. Okay, serve your guest. And what else? And rising from one's seat for one's father and teacher. The same trait as the second one, the first hadith. And finally, he says, وَطَلَبُ الْحَقِّ And seeking your right, or seeking a right, even though it may be small. And the imam started by saying, these are things to never shy away from. Don't be ashamed. If it's a right, ask for it. Because this creates a completely different type of society. If you want to, you can let it go. But what you're letting go may have a different price. It may have a social price. Sometimes you're willing to let go of your own personal right. That's fine. You're fully entitled for this, especially when you're doing it for noble, honorable reasons. But sometimes this creates fake or bad habits in society, bad trends in a community that rights of certain people in certain situations are not going to be respected or recognized. In those cases, perhaps, there is a reason to ask for that right. Or this is a right that, is, that matters to you. It may seem insignificant to others, but to you it matters. If it's a right, Imam Ali السلام, says, go after it. Seek that right, even if it's small. This creates a better world, a better society. And today we're witnessing what goes in the world when slowly the slippery slope of rights are not respected. The small becomes big and the big becomes huge and the huge becomes absolutely catastrophic. 
from the Holy Prophet in another hadith he says ثَلَاثَةٌ لَا يَسْتَخِفُّ بِحَقِّهِمْ إِلَّا مُنَافِقٌ ذُو شَيْبَةٍ فِي الْإِسْلَامِ وَإِمَامٌ مُقْسِطٌ وَمُعَلِّمُ الْخَيْرِ So the Holy Prophet says there are three individuals whose right, whose honor would never be taken lightly by anyone except a hypocrite, except someone who is not really a believer. They're faking faith. They're faking belief when they're not really fully a believer. Only someone like that would dishonor these three. Only someone like that who is not really a believer would not give these people their full right. So who are they? There are three mentioned here. There are other hadith that mention other ones. The three mentioned in this hadith are an elderly person in Islam. You respect them for being older than you or for being of old age. Period. One. Two. A just ruler. Someone who rules over others, a political leader or ruler who is just, who is fair. You live with justice in under the rule. You respect and honor them. And what else? And a teacher of good. A teacher of goodness. Someone who teaches people something that you consider to be good. Someone who spreads good, teaches good in society. But here it's الخير. Someone who is recognized as being a teacher. They are a source of knowledge and influence in that way. That's the role they carry. So there's a few things we can say here, but very quickly. These three may not seem related, and whether there is a relationship between them or not, we leave it to another time. Clearly the Holy Prophet is saying, recognize these individuals. They carry a lot of worth in a society. Because the repercussion, the threat that you have is, if you do not honor them, you're falling in the category of the munafiq, of the hypocrite. These are big heavy words. So the Holy Prophet is saying in other words, if we want to be a good community and think about this, we have to say, what is the function that these people are performing in the community? Their influence. What are we doing to enable them to do this? There are people who are leading. There are people who are taking charge of our affairs. Recognize that and honor it. There are people who are playing the role of the teacher. Recognize that and honor it. And there are people who have, perhaps it's a reference to, perhaps it's a reference to their life experience. The elderly. They have had a much longer life than you and I. They've been in this world and they've seen a lot more and they've experienced a lot more. This has to be recognized. And recognizing it is not just that I respect this person to respect this person. There are things I can learn from them. I have to create an environment where I can learn. I can go ask them. I can learn from them, from their lessons, from when they have to impart to others based on now having reached this age. In any case, as we said, we don't want to spend too much time on the comments. Next hadith from Imam Ali alayhi salam. Again, in the same category of honoring and dishonoring. He says, لا تزدريين العالم وإن كان حقيرا 
ولا تعظمن الأحمق وإن كان كبيرا Do not belittle, do not show condescension to the scholar, to the person who carries knowledge, even if they are of a very low status. So here, most likely, the Imam is talking about what we would say today, a socioeconomic status. Someone who doesn't carry a lot of weight in society, by the standards of society, this is not someone who is important. But Imam Ali says, don't belittle this person. If you know this is a scholar, they carry knowledge, then give them the respect that matches that knowledge. Don't give them the respect that society gives them for their socioeconomic rank. Some people hold political positions, social positions, because of their finances, because of their titles. Imam Ali is saying the true criteria that you should be using is the amount of knowledge, and we've talked enough about the characteristics of that knowledge, the amount of knowledge this person carries. If this is a person with that type of knowledge, don't belittle them. Even though in society they may not carry a very high social status, or economic status, or political status. And this was especially the case if you go back, let's say, 14 centuries ago, when it was very important to understand the tribal structure and it was a society that was filled with people who were slaves, for instance. Imam Ali is saying you put all of that aside and you look at the knowledge of this person. If they have great knowledge, you treat them as a great person, regardless of where they sit in that society. Today, these structures are very different. We have to understand where we came from and where the context of these hadith were. And the Opposite side, وَلَا تُعَظْمَنَّ الْأَحْمَقِ The person who is a fool, who lacks knowledge, who lacks wisdom, who lacks intellect, don't treat them as though they are great. Don't give them false honors. Don't elevate their rank. وَإِنْ كَانَ كَبِيرًا Even if they have a very high social, economic, political rank. Because otherwise, you are giving the wrong elevation, the wrong honors in society. You are encouraging a society that is not based on the true criteria. You're now creating a society that is based on criteria that should not matter. And you're feeding that. Okay, so I think this part is clear, inshallah. An Muqatil ibn Sulaiman. وجدت في الإنجيل أن الله تعالى قال لعيسى عليه السلام عظم العلماء واعرف فضلهم فإني فضلتهم على جميع خلقي إلا النبيين والمرسلين كفضل الشمس على الكواكب وكفضل الآخرة على الدنيا So there's a scholar, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about him A man by the name of Muqatil ibn Sulaiman He says, I found in the gospel that God says to Isa السلام, to Prophet Jesus السلام, honor the scholars and recognize their worth or their excellence for I have favored them over all of my creation except the prophets and the messengers just as the sun is superior to the stars and the hereafter, the akhirah, the hereafter is superior to this world so this man 
if you go back to his life, there's a little bit of disagreement on who he was and when he lived and to even which school of thought he belonged. He seems to have been a Sunni scholar, Muqatil ibn Sulaiman. Um, he is someone who traveled to, to Iraq at some point. Uh, and he was known to narrate a lot of ahadith related to the Holy Quran. And in fact today, if you want to go back to the original sources of tafsir, there is a tafsir by the name of Tafsir Muqatil ibn Sulaiman. And it's there and it's published. Anyone can have access to it. So he lived around the year 150, 150 Hijri. So he lived at the time of Imam al-Baqir, Imam al-Sadiq, And if you go back to the books of biographies, some of our scholars, Sheikh al-Tusi and others, have referred to him as being a companion or a learner of Imam al-Baqir and Imam al-Sadiq. He may have learned in their schools and in their learning circles. That said, he is considered to be Sunni. Some have said he might have been Zaidi. We're not sure. The reason I say all of this is to say that generally speaking, in the Sunni school, they don't consider his ruwayat to be very authentic. And in our school, so we can't just automatically say this is an authentic hadith, but pretty much every point in this hadith can be matched with many, many other ahadith. So we know that the content is legitimate enough, considered that the points that it makes can be matched with many, many other ahadith. It's a little technical, but I know some of you are interested in this, so we wanted to mention it quickly. Next hadith from Imam al-Sadiq He says, because we've been talking about honoring and dishonoring, you elevate some people, you belittle some people. And I thought this hadith is very, very important from Imam al-Sadiq in case there is any doubt. Okay, to, to be clear, Imam al-Sadiq he says, Al-aqil la yastakhiffu bi ahad. Someone who has knowledge, someone who has reason, someone who has wisdom, they do not belittle anyone. Period. Okay? And then he says, وَأَحَقُّ مَنْ لَا يُسْتَخَفُّ بِهِ ثَلَاثَةٌ الْعُلَمَاءُ وَالسُلْطَانُ وَالْإِخْوَانُ لِأَنَّهُ مَنْ اسْتَخَفَّ بِالْعُلَمَاءُ أَفْسَدَ دِينَهُ So Imam Sadiq السلام, he begins by saying, a wise person or someone with intellect does not belittle anyone. So that's the general rule in our religion. You do not belittle, you do not treat anyone with condescension. And then from everyone that you are not now already respecting and treating in the right way, in an honorable way, from all of those people, he says, and the three who truly deserve not to ever be belittled are... And then he mentions three categories. First one is the scholars. The second one, second category are the rulers. And the third is the brothers of faith. So that's pretty much everyone living in your community, right? Especially at that time. For whoever belittles the scholars will corrupt their religion. So a couple of remarks about this. These are the types of ahadith that many of our scholars right away would say. The easiest explanation for this hadith is taqiyya. This is an example of a hadith where the imam says the right things in the hadith so that the hadith does not disappear. 
There's enough that will politically be accepted at the time of the Imam that the hadith will be passed on in society between the masses from generation to generation. Because the Imam said something in there that the political rule of the time, as much as they don't want the Imam to teach, he put something in the hadith that allows the hadith to continue to spread. He said there are three categories that should never be dishonored. The scholars, okay, easy. The brothers of faith, again, easy. He put the rulers in there as a third category. Okay, so one easy explanation would be, this is the example of, and we have many, and this is not something that we add by ourselves. This is not an interpretation or a commentary. We have come up with, you know, centuries after the ahadith. The imams have told us that some of our ahadith have been said because of taqiyyah, because we need to dissimulate something, to hide something, to protect the people, or to protect the knowledge, or to preserve you who are receiving that knowledge. Otherwise, they will come after you. Okay, so we know this. The imams have told us, and they have given us a lot of factors. They've explicitly said, these are the ways you will know this is a hadith that has taqiyya or not. And this is, by the way, why the imams insist so much that at the end of times, if you want to know the true scholar, go back to those who know how we speak and who know our hadith. They are scholars in how we talk, and they can tell you right away what is the meaning of this hadith when you have these questions. That's one. That's one layer. It might be taqiyah. Another interpretation or explanation of this is that the imam is not adding all the details. So he's just giving the high title of that category. It's someone who's a ruler. Not all rulers are bad. Some rulers are good. Some rulers are not good. Some are just. Some are unjust. And we just encountered a hadith not long ago a few minutes ago, where the Imam was saying, a ruler, a ruler who is just. This is someone who is to be honored. This is worth a lot of honor and a lot of respect and a lot of recognition in the world, that you have someone who has reached a status of political rule over others and they act with justice. Because it's very difficult. And so here, the imam is simply not adding the qualifiers. He's not adding the details of that ruler. He's simply saying, a ruler, we need to add the conditions. We know the conditions. They're mentioned in many other ahadith. The imam does not need to list them all. He's saying whoever meets the good conditions, because the same thing could be said about the scholar. It's not just because someone carries the knowledge that they are automatically a scholar who must automatically be honored. They also have to be a good scholar, carrying real knowledge, using that knowledge for good. The Imam didn't say all of that. So we could say the same thing here. That the Imam is also implying a lot of these conditions clearly. The third point related to this hadith is, the Imam just mentioned three categories of people. He said, those, everybody has to be honored, but those three specifically may never be dishonored. And then what he added as a detail was only about one of them. He only said after all of this, for whoever belittles the scholars will corrupt their religion, will corrupt their faith. He didn't talk about the ruler and he didn't talk about the brothers in faith. When we know for sure that there are good reasons for those as well, but the imam didn't mention them. And so this adds another focus to the hadith. The imam is bringing our attention to what matters in this hadith and what requires 
an explanation. And so in this hadith he said, there's a reason for this. If the scholars are dishonored, the scholars, which means the true scholars, the scholars are your source of religion, of religious knowledge. They're your source of faith, of belief, or, or of iman. If you no longer have that connection, you're no longer honoring them, it ends up corrupting your faith. Because they are the source of your faith. You're receiving your version of faith, your version of religion from the scholars. If that relationship is broken, if the honor and respect is not there, your own faith and belief is going to be corrupted, either immediately or down the line. But it will be corrupted. So he said, You are going to ultimately end up with a distorted, with a corrupted, with a destroyed, with a perverted form of belief. Because the scholars were not honored, were not respected. And see again, for every hadith, I don't want to repeat it, for every hadith you see the ultimate, the true, the absolute, the meaning or commentary of the hadith would be what? Who is the scholar? The imam. And this is exactly what happened in the world. And then you end up with a version of religion that is corrupted, that is perverted, that is distorted. And we have to go through all of these acrobatic loopholes to try to figure out which version of religion, which detail is true and which is not. Why? Because the true ulama, the true scholars, were not honored. Okay? This is the true definition of all of these ahadith, in any case. Next hadith from Imam Ali salam, he says, مَنْ وَقَّرَ عَالِمًا فَقَدْ وَقَّرَ رَبَّهِ So this simply goes back to a previous hadith we saw from the Holy Prophet ﷺ, from Imam Ali, he says, whoever honors a scholar, he has indeed honor, honored his Lord. I won't comment anything more here except to say once again, the honor is because it's not about the person. It's not about the individual. It's about what they represent and what they carry in terms of knowledge and information. This is what you're truly honoring and respecting. Next hadith from, this is not really a, a hadith attributed to the imams, but it's a hadith that is very big and very important and considered very authentic in the Sunni school. And it has nice teachings in it, so I mention it quickly. And as we said, we're trying to present things in a way so that you feel like you're, you're getting a complete uh, understanding of the topic. يؤثر عن عبد الله بن عباس أنه كان يأخذ بركاب زيد بن ثابت ويقول هكذا أمرنا أن نفعل بعلمائنا وقال ثلاث من توقير جلال الله إكرام ذي الشيبة في الإسلام وحامل كتاب الله وحامل العلم صغيرا كان أو كبيرا So it is reported that Abdullah ibn Abbas so this would be the Abbas is the uncle, the paternal uncle of the Holy Prophet he had a number of sons, his youngest son he was still very young, he was brought into the house of the Holy Prophet when he was still a child and so he grew up in the house of the Holy Prophet and this is Abdullah ibn Abbas and this is why you have so many narrations from Abdullah ibn Abbas from a very young age, his father saw that he was very, 
very intelligent. He was a very intelligent child. And here is the Holy Prophet teaching all the time. He thought the best way I would do this is simply take my child and put him in the house of the Holy Prophet. And we have narrations that say he would sleep. He would come and sleep in the bed of the Holy Prophet. This is how close he was to the Holy Prophet This is not. This did not last for a long time. The Holy Prophet passed away soon after. This lasted a few years, maybe two or three years, and the Holy Prophet passes away after. And so it's true that he spent a lot of time, the time that he was alive and aware enough and learning enough, he did spend it in the presence of the Holy Prophet, and he seems to have been someone who was of a deep faith and someone with a very high level of intelligence. He was able to remember a lot of what he was hearing, and he was able to memorize it and pass it on to others. But sometimes the role of Ibn Abbas is exaggerated. When you think that Ibn Abbas is still a child when the Holy Prophet passes away, and you compare with Imam Ali salam. That's why you understand the relationship of Ibn Abbas to Imam Ali. Ibn Abbas considers, even if we put the theological dimension aside, Ibn Abbas considers Imam Ali to be the source of knowledge after the Holy Prophet and the head of Bani Hashim, politically speaking. And in terms of someone who spent time with the Holy Prophet, Ibn Abbas can't compare, can be compared or can't compare himself to Imam Ali a.s. Imam is a man in his 30s. Ibn Abbas perhaps 11 or around there when the Holy Prophet passes away. And so I say this because depending on which discipline in religion you go back to, you see that pretty much everything is narrated from Ibn Abbas. Okay? So I think this context needs to be added. There's a lot more that can be said about Ibn Abbas. One of our great scholars who just passed away, he wrote a work to really analyze the life of Ibn Abbas and his influence on Islam and so on and so forth. It's 20 volumes. It's an encyclopedia of 20 big volumes. Okay, there's a lot that can be said about Ibn Abbas. But I think this, at least this historical point, is worth keeping in mind when we see a hadith from Ibn Abbas. In any case, so in this hadith, there's a few things that are important. So it's reported from Abdullah Ibn Abbas now that we know who he is, that he used to, either we say he used to carry, or that he used to prepare. And there are two meanings here to what he used to carry or prepare. Either the sandals, or either the saddle. Okay? Either the thing you wear in your feet, or the thing that you put your foot in to get on your horse or your camel. Okay? But in all cases, no matter how it's interpreted, because if you go to the commentators, they've given both of these images. The image is clear. He's doing something out of a lot of respect and reverence to someone. Who is the someone? He's Zayd ibn Thabit. Who is Zayd ibn Thabit? One of the companions of the Holy Prophet who again came into the life of the Holy Prophet at a very young age. His father brought him to the Holy Prophet. Before seeing the Holy Prophet, he told the Holy Prophet, I have already memorized I think it was 15 surah of the Holy Quran. At a time when the Holy Quran was not fully revealed yet. At a time when the community of Muslims were still very small. And this is someone who lived outside of the city of the Holy Prophet And as a young child, 
His father brings him and he tells him he already has memorized this much. So the Holy Prophet saw that this is a man or a child at that time of great potential. So he allowed him to stay with him so that he would teach him the Holy Quran, either directly or through one of his close companions, because the Holy Prophet would not teach all of them directly. He would teach a few directly who had the, a role to teach others. Okay? The Holy Prophet created a system how the Holy Quran would spread in society. So Zayd ibn Thabit was one of the original memorizers of the Holy Quran. And he was respected for that. And he was also respected for a large number of hadith that he used to narrate. We're not going to talk about his life because that requires a good discussion on his political and theological positions after the death of the Holy Prophet and how he acted and so on and so forth. In any case, so in this case, now that we know all of this, we go back to the hadith. The hadith says that Ibn Abbas, he used to prepare the saddle of Zayd ibn Thabit for him to ride on his horse or his camel. And he used to say, we have been ordered or we have been commanded. This is how we have been commanded or we have been instructed to treat our scholars. And there's a whole story around this, but the way the hadith is said, Clearly you can see or how it's reported. It says, It means he used to do this repeatedly or all the time. This is not something he did once. And so Zayd ibn Thabit would not accept. He would tell him, you're from the household of the Holy Prophet. You shouldn't be doing this. And he would tell him, this is what he would answer. He says, we have been instructed to deal with honor and respect in this way. Yes, I will prepare your saddle for you so that you put your foot in it. And we're told Zayd ibn Thabit would either kiss his hand or kiss his head and he would get on it. Okay? And then he would add, he also said, three things indicate honoring the majesty of God. Very similar to what we saw earlier. Honoring the elderly in Islam. Honoring those who carry the book of God. Those who, who know the Holy Quran. So this is a connection. Right? Because Zayd ibn Thabit was known to know the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the Quran and honoring those who carry knowledge, whether young or old. And this is a distinctive feature in our religion. This is something you will not find anywhere else. That from the first day when the Holy Prophet started to talk about knowledge and the importance of knowledge in Islam, he made a point to say that this is not a condition. Your age is not a condition when it comes to knowledge. If you're young but you carry knowledge, you carry knowledge. And if you're old and you don't carry knowledge, you don't carry knowledge. The factor is knowledge. The factor is not age. Age has a separate discussion and a separate honor. Just for your age, I will honor you. For your age. I will honor you differently. And for another reason, which is the knowledge you carry, even if you're young. That part is clear, inshallah. I don't know if we have time to enter the next one, the next heading. A few more minutes? Or do we stop here? We keep going? Okay. Sallu ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad. There's a number of ahadith that talk about being in the company, so in the physical company of the scholars. So either you invite them, either you visit them, 
either you stay around them. So I put a number, just a few samples from these ahadith together very quickly. The first one from the Holy Prophet ﷺ, he says, من استقبل العلماء فقد استقبلني ومن زار العلماء فقد زارني ومن جالس العلماء فقد جالسني ومن جالسني فكأنما جالس ربي The Holy Prophet says whoever receives whoever hosts so you invite the scholar they have indeed received me or invited me and whoever visits the scholars they have indeed visited me and whoever sits with the scholars it is as though they have sat with me, and whoever sits with me, it is as though they are sitting with my Lord. So again, very similar, but this is a specific type of, as we said, there are the general ahadith that simply talk about honor, and then we have the ahadith that give very specific examples of these honors. This one is interesting because it talks about the time you're trying to spend with, of course there are other social dimensions to this, but the time you're physically spending with this person. This has a different effect on you. It's very diff diff different to do this than, for instance, to never meet a scholar but just to read their book. These are two very different ways of being influenced by someone. Okay, so I'll just leave it at that. We may come back to this point later. Maybe we can end with this hadith. This is not a hadith. This is an, a little passage from a dua from Imam Zain al-Abidin alayhi salam. It's called dua al-Sahar. And deserves a series of lengthy discussions on this dua and the importance of this dua. If you've never read it and you have a bit of time, find it. If you can understand it in Arabic, great. If not, find any translation of this dua. I assure you that it will have a very big impact on you just reading it from beginning to end. Okay, without commentary, without anything. So in any case, in this dua, there is a tiny passage that I wanted to highlight. But for this passage to make sense, we have to see where the imam started and what he was talking about for him to mention this passage. So what we're talking about here is, you know, to be in the presence of scholars, right? You either create a gathering and invite the scholar, or you go to the scholar, you invite them, you accompany them, you're in their presence. Correct? Okay, so keeping that in mind. In this dua, at some point, the Imam says this. He says, Allahumma inni kullama qult qad tahayyatu wa ta'abbatu wa qumtu lissalati bayna yadayk wa najaytuka alqayta alayya nuasan idh ana sallaytu wa salabtani munajataka idh ana najayt. So this is the first part. Okay, not of the dua, of this little passage. It's a long dua. So the Imam says, My Lord, every time I say I have prepared myself and I have readied myself and I have risen for prayer before you and I have supplicated to you, you seem to cast a drowsiness, a sleepiness upon me when I am praying. And you deprive me from my intimate conversation with you when I want to converse with you. Okay, he says, in my intentions, I want to have that type of state. But as soon as I find myself wanting to pray or wanting to do my munajat, my dua, as we said, it's like a whispered prayer, an intimate prayer, an intimate conversation between us and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is what's called munajat. Every time I try to do this, I get lazy, I get sleepy, I get drowsy, 
and I'm deprived from what I'm trying to do. Then the Imam says, مالي كلما قلت قد صلحت سريرتي وقرب من مجالس التوابين مجلسي عرضت لي بلية أزالت قدمي وحالت بيني وبين خدمتك So he says, what's wrong with me? That every time I say my innermost intentions will now be righteous and I will now become close to the gatherings of those who repent those who ask your forgiveness. From now on, I'm going to be of those people. I want to be in those gatherings. And from now on, I'm going to fix my most secret, my innermost intentions. Why is it and what is wrong with me that every time I try to do this, a calamity intervenes, which removes my foot or makes my foot slip, the Imam says, and becomes an obstacle. This calamity is that there's an obstacle that stands between me and your service. What happens? What's going on? And then the Imam says, Sayyidi, la'allaka an babika taradtani, wa'an khidmatika nahaytani, aw la'allaka ra'aytani mustakhiffan bihaqqika fa'aqsaytani, aw la'allaka ra'aytani mu'aridan anka fa'qallaytani, aw la'allaka wajadtani fi maqam al-kathibina fa'rafadtani, أو لعلك رأيتني غير شاكر لنعمائك فحرمتني. So the Imam says maybe there's a reason. He says what's wrong with me that every time I try to do this it doesn't work, as though there's some obstacle that comes up. And then the Imam starts to enumerate possible reasons. So this becomes a lesson for us. The Imam is giving us a checklist. I have to start looking at each one of these. So the Imam says perhaps you have. Cast me away from your door and excluded me from your service. Maybe you have seen me trivializing your right. That you, you see me dishonoring you, not being worthy of carrying your right. So you have repelled me. Perhaps you have seen me turning away from you. So you have debased me. Maybe you have found me in the stations of liars. Maybe you consider me to be a liar. Every time I say, I don't do. So maybe I'm a liar in your eyes. And so the result, so you have rejected me. And then the Imam continues, perhaps you have seen me ungrateful for all of your blessings. So you have deprived me. And then the line we wanted to say. Or the Imam says, min majalis Or perhaps, you have seen me absent from the gatherings of scholars. And so you have forsaken me. So this is why we said there is a whole discussion in our religion about being physically in the presence of the scholars. And so the Imam here at the end, he says, these are all potential reasons for why when I get up to pray, I feel sleepy and drowsy and lazy. And every time I try to fix my innermost intentions, it doesn't work. What's wrong with me? Is it this? Is it this? Is it this? So the Imam is enumerating. The Imam, of course, he, this is an invocation between the Imam and his Lord. But the Imam is also teaching us. Who else is going to tell me, why is it that I feel lazy when I get up to pray? I need someone who knows the human soul fully and the effects of everything on my relationship with God. And this can only be done by religion and by done by the prophet or the imams so the imam is giving me the checklist
is saying if these are the actions, these are the attitudes that we have, these are the automatic repercussions. And so one of them, the Imam says, is never to be in the presence of scholars. You're never exposed to the presence of the person who carries the true knowledge. The Imam says one of the potential consequences is that when I get up to pray, I feel lazy. And when I try to feel good and to be good, I'm drowsy. I don't feel like it. My intent was good initially, but when I try to do it, it doesn't work. The Imam says it's like there's a calamity. This is a disaster that makes my foot slip. Right? The foot is the intent. The intent is there, but it slips. It doesn't stand. It's not firm. Why is it not firm? So all of these things that Imam enumerated are potential reasons. And the last one he mentions is and never to be in the presence of scholars. He, he's telling Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, every time you look at a gathering around the scholar, you don't find me there. And so you have forsaken me. Maybe that's the reason why I'm forsaken and I'm not able to do what I'm trying to do. In any case, as I said, if you can, this is a beautiful dua that we should all be reciting and going into and reading slowly when we can or reading passages of it. It's very rich and very dense and very spiritual, very well-known dua to be recited in Shahar Ramadan, for instance, to be recited in the middle of the night. For those who want to pray Salat al-Layl, this is a well-known dua to be recited after Salat al-Layl and so on and so forth. So inshallah, we take the opportunity to take a look at Dua al-Sahar from Imam Zain al-Abidin alayhi salam. Let's stop here. We'll continue the maybe second half. I don't know if we'll be able to finish. Inshallah, we'll be able to finish the second half of the rights of the teacher next time. Wa sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi tayyibin al-tahirin. Questions, concerns, comments? The things that the Prophet may direct us to do, honestly, it's quite fruitful. We go back to the way when he's telling us to show appreciation to our teachers or people who learn from. This practice, this relationship with the teacher is always fruitful. The students will feel that their teacher is appreciating it. He is really admiring that they recognize the kind of favor and knowledge that he's passing to them. And he will always do more when he feels that his students is appreciating and showing that admiring to him. So it's not just, honestly, not just the religious or the, inshallah, and the afterlife that we see it. No, you can see a fruit of it in your life when you're dealing with your teachers. And this is true for all stages. From, from primary to the postgraduate levels, you will find that they are always appreciating and welcoming these, these kind of appreciation from their students. That's all I have to say. Ahsantum. And this is, uh, by the way, this is a topic we talked about a lot in the past. We, we called it the psychological dimension. Uh, and we said our religion talks about this excellent point that you raised with with regards to the, the benefits of having a strong relationship between the learner and the teacher, 
And perhaps because this is not something that will always happen naturally. And if you see that naturally it doesn't happen, our religion mentions it so much to make sure that we make an extra effort to keep it going. Especially on the side of the teacher, it's not always easy to remain in that situation of teaching. And so this is one of the things that encourages the person to continue teaching, is that they feel like the knowledge is appreciated, that there's someone who cares on the other side. There's a hadith, inshallah, we'll talk about it the next time. Um, Imam Ali alayhi salam, he says, مُنَاقَشَةُ الْعُلَمَاءِ you, you want to find a way to reach or to grasp or to take the benefits of the scholars. And one of the ways to do that is just to discuss with them and to talk with them. But the other easier way is to have that type of relationship and honor and respect. And it applies everywhere. As you said, beyond religion, even beyond the religious dimension. Ahsantum. Allah I have a first question. Just what's the name of the Wasn't 
too staunch on either way, and by that have more influence to spread more of the knowledge of the Prophet. Is that something a scholar is to do at times, or no, always take a staunch political stance no matter what? Okay, so your question is very complex. Uh, there's multiple layers to it. First, uh, Ibn Abbas as a personality. Um, you can't lump together Ibn Abbas with his brothers in the same way. Um, at least one, maybe more than one of the brothers of Ibn Abbas. Yes, they betrayed Imam Hassan salam, and they did other awful things too. This does not necessarily mean that Ibn Abbas himself did. A very small minority of our scholars say that he may also have done. And because of that, they have a negative view and position of Ibn Abbas in general. No one doubts the knowledge of Ibn Abbas. Um, but whether his positions were always respectful and honorable towards Imam Ali salam or Ahlul Bayt salam. There is a slight difference. The crushing majority of our scholars, they consider him to be um, noble, honorable, brave, uh, and that his positions were all good. Ibn Abbas specifically, Abdullah Ibn Abbas, if this is what we're, who, who we're talking about. So we can't equate him or lump him together with what his brothers did. They stole money and they did other things. And they joined Muawiyah and it was a whole drama what they did and each one of their actions resulted in disasters for Ahl al-Bayt But Ibn Abbas does not seem to have been implicated in any of that. His position seems to have been clear enough from the beginning that he was with Imam Ali salam. But as we said, Ibn Abbas was a child at the time. Sometimes we want to give him a lot more of a role to play in that society when the Holy Prophet for instance, passes away, later he does become a man, and later he is respected, and he has courage, and he says things, and and the fact that he was not recognized as being the of the closest companions of Imam Ali, but everybody knows they're Bani Hashim. Everybody knows what their loyalty ultimately is, even though, you know, his brothers later did other things. Generally speaking, no matter what he would do, he was counted as being the clan of Bani Hashim. And so he would side with Imam Ali salam, generally speaking. That said, he was still very critical of a lot of the things at the time, especially of Umar and later. Which means that as he grew older, he started to take a clearer and clearer position. This is what, what we understand from this. Now to your second point, okay, which is the role of the scholar and what he did and was he similar to Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyyah or not. We can't just quickly say Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiya, everything he did is good or everything he did is wrong. Okay, and I, I have never, I've talked about them, I never take a position because I think that needs to be discussed and studied by itself. And there is a reason why our scholars disagree on a number of personalities and what their position ultimately was. We have historians, the same, the same thing, but much less significant could be said, for instance, about al-Mukhtar. Okay, there are issues. One way to understand them, but you need evidence, and there is evidence, but some scholars don't consider it to be authentic, is to say that they were acting with the clear instructions of the Imams. The reason why Muhammad ibn al Hanafiya did everything he did was under the clear instructions of Imam al Hussein and Imam al Sajjad. In short, this is the way, if this is true, then everything he did was correct. And everything was under their command. 
Now, how was this ca- the case? This is a long discussion. And was this the case or not? This is where some scholars disagree. But there is evidence that there is, this is all from the imam. It can be shown with evidence. Is the evidence authentic is where the scholars disagree. Okay, Same thing can be said about someone like Ibn Abbas. Generally speaking, his relationship all the way till the martyrdom of Imam al-Hussein alayhi salam, it seems to be very acceptable. By everybody, because Imam Hussein alayhi salam praised him yeah. right before leaving. And he told him, I know that everything you're telling me is based on sincere intentions and sincere advice. So we have no questions about this. So we can't go and say that his intentions were not good or that he wanted to become you know, a political leader himself. Or That's not the case. The Imam praised him. And this is explicit and it's not open to... The Imam did not have any reason to say what he said. So the Imam is definitely recognizing and thanking Ibn Abbas for all the good advice. Ibn Abbas is telling him, whatever you do, do not go to Iraq and do not do what you're about to do. The Imam told him, you know, I thank you, I know your intentions are sincere and you know, all of that. So this tells us that his intentions were good, Ibn Abbas. Now the ultimate question so therefore, how much latitude does a scholar have? If we consider Ibn Abbas to be at that level of scholar. Okay? So because you said something like, he's like Abu Huraira. Okay? In a way. No, he's not like Abu Huraira. The reason is that the knowledge that he carried is real knowledge. And a lot of the ahadith, if you know how to dig for the ahadith, you will see that in fact, He's learning them from Imam Ali But this part is not mentioned in a lot of the ahadith. But you go and you study his life well and you see he was a student of Imam Ali. Just like he was much earlier in his life, he was a student of the Holy Prophet. And he's repeating the ahadith that he learned from them. Okay, This is why we say he is different in that way. Whereas Abu Huraira already in his time, Umar ibn al-Khattab beat him up and punished him and told him, do not lie against the Holy Prophet. And this is well known, and this is well established, authentic, well known about his biography. So already there's a very big difference in that way. The issue is, are there fabrications? Are there people who reported a hadith to Ibn Abbas that he did not say? Of course, because he, he would be so easy to use for that. Okay, as they did with others. Ibn Abbas is the easiest to do that with. So that's why it becomes even more difficult when as soon as you see the name Ibn Abbas, you have to be extra careful because he is more easily used that way because he was so prolific to start with in the amount of ahadith that he gave. Now, yeah. He's very well accepted in Rome. So that's what, why is he not like, okay, some of the other companions in Rome where they don't really take from Rome or whatever and very well respected yeah. in the world. Like that's a, which if he was a kid when it happened, like when the Prophet died, so he can't really take a political stance that really stands up. Mm-hmm. So maybe when he grew up and the, the field is laid out, he doesn't really have to take a stance that just puts him in a bad situation for no reason. Whereas opposed to take a more neutral stance so that his influence could um, um, uh, spread. That's what I'm just saying for a scholar. Is that something to take into account? Yeah. 
So, so this is the point I'm getting to, and this is what I mentioned about Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyya, al-Mukhtar, if it's the case or not. Certainly for Ibn Abbas, it would be the same thing. He would not have that latitude himself. If he is acting based on the commands and instructions of the imams, then we would say, of course. If he's doing this by himself, we would say no. This would be a mistake. In the presence of the infallible, you should not be going and creating latitudes for yourself. Okay, that would be the issue. Now, I want to add one last point about him, and we because we, this would require a very lengthy discussion. But the last point changes everything. And the last point is that you fast forward history, and the descendants of this lineage become the Khulafa, and they write history. And all the sons of Al-Abbas and their father, Al-Abbas himself, now become the superheroes of Islam. Yeah. Because they are the ancestors of the Khulafa. And anyone who studies Islamic history in its sources, you can very easily see that. There's suddenly something that happens, and Bani Al-Abbas become superheroes. And so the role of Al-Abbas, we have to be extra careful. What was his role during the time of the Holy Prophet? What did he actually do? What did he not do? What roles did he play? What did he? What roles did not were not played by him? Maybe added later. And the same thing for all of the sons of Al-Abbas. Okay, so this is what adds a much bigger layer of complexity to everything related to Abdullah ibn Abbas. Okay, this is the last point. There's a lot more we can say, but this is the, the last point. Yeah, Hassantum. Based, very good, excellent question. So elderly in Islam, what does it mean? Um, the, I'll repeat the wording in Arabic just so that uh, it's very clear. And I believe the first hadith that we had seen was from the Holy Prophet uh, in which he said, uh, the manner in which the words are said is that someone who grows old while being Muslim. Okay? Does it mean that just being elderly by itself? We have other hadith that simply talk about shayba and don't add this, but we know that this is a condition, right? This is the ultimate condition. Your question is not this though. Your question is someone who has spent their whole life in Islam, right? or someone who, let's say, enters Islam in old age, and then they pass away. Clearly, there's a difference. The Qur'an talks about this. Someone who spends their life in sacrifice and you know, Islamic work and servitude, as opposed to someone who enters at the very end of their life, there is a difference. 
And the Quran talks about this. He says those two cannot be equated. That's one. The caveat to this though, is that our general principle in Islam is the moment you enter into this religion, everything before it is deleted, right? Canceled out, annulled. You're starting a blank page. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgives. So this is not to say that automatically just because you're an older person in Islam. It has to be that you truly, your actions were sincere before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in a lifetime of servitude. Of course, it would not be fair to equate that and you have reached old age in Islam, it would not be fair to equate that with someone who just entered Islam and let's say they're you know 89 years old and they pass away a year later. I don't know if I answered, but that would be the... Okay. وَصَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَى سَيْدِنَا مُحَمَّدٍ وَعَلَى آلِهِ الطَّيْبِينَ الطَّاهِرِينَ